Today, we have Dr. David Gushy here with us again. Now, let's circle back to our reading from Mark today. Any one of you who want to be a follower must stop thinking about yourself and what you want. You must carry the cross. Anytime you're going to be an ally, you're going to stand up for what's right, you're going to put yourself aside and put the oppressed ahead of yourself, you're going to have to, as Emily and I heard at uh, uh, affirming, uh, the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries uh, um, uh, event a couple, uh, two, uh, two years ago now, you have to put your reputation on the line. It's not you any longer. If, if once you put yourself as a true ally, you're going to lose everything um, that you that you've that you've earned and grown and have sought over time because you're going to be in that same predicament as the oppressed that you're protecting. Dr. Gushy lost his standing as evangelicalism's top ethicist. This is academia. You don't want to lose that that reputation, that rapport. When he wrote Changing Our Minds in 2015, advocating for full inclusion of LGBTQIA+. But he gained standing where it counts with the people that we that like us in Blue Ocean and others who support everyone being welcome to the table. I think, and we think, he traded up. He's got the better deal, right? Dr. Gushy is the Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University in Atlanta and of Christian Social Ethics at the Faculty of Religion and Theology, Free University in Amsterdam. It's a long way from, from Ann Arbor, but we love it. We, we support him anyway. So now we are delighted to welcome him to our sacred, virtual, networked, everywhere, nowhere space today. I bring you Dr. Gushy. Please come down. Uh, thank you so much, Carla. And uh, it is just so good to see um, and be with you all again. I don't remember exactly when I was with you in person. Has it been three years? Or maybe longer? Four years? Uh, I remember uh, just a a glorious experience of Christian community uh, with you all in Ann Arbor that day. And um, and I'm really pleased to be back. I, I love uh, what you are, are doing and being as church and, um, and, and to see that you're going strong. You're a year into Zoom church, right? A year into pandemic. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased. So, so anyway, thanks for the invitation. Thanks for the kind words, Carla. There's no question that I traded up. I definitely traded up. Um, and my life has been so, so positively uh, changed. And that reminds me of Jesus saying, you know, uh, where Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, yes, and you will be rewarded with abundance, right? You know, uh, basically, more family and 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 more blessing than you could ever have imagined and that's really how i feel about um my own uh journey as an ally um today i have been asked uh to talk a little bit about the new book um after evangelicalism and uh it's kind of a book talk um yeah so so it's not so much of a sermon except for what god wants to do whenever we gather together right 
So I'm going to give you a bit of an overview of after evangelicalism and and, and let's just see, uh, you know, where the spirit uh, takes the conversation right later. So um, if I if I go too long, uh, cut off my microphone or something, that's easy to do on Zoom, right? Um, so I'll start off by showing you this this cover. The cover is a maze. It's intended to be a maze. Um, people ask me, is there a way out of the maze? And so you have to try it out for yourself, right? Um, so let me start off by quoting a line and just be thinking about a maze. I say this in the intro. I meet people all the time who can't find their way out of the evangelical maze. They got stuck. In the Northwest corner over biblical inerrancy or in the Northeast part over male dominance or, the, or in the Southern region over sexuality. They can't get out of the maze. They can't go back to where they came from. And it seems that they can't move ahead. So raise your hand if you have any idea what I'm talking about, right? Raise your hand if you were raised to be or at one time chose to call yourself an evangelical Christian, right? Raise your hand if you would say that you're now in some place of post all of that, X all of that, questioning all of that, or way done with all of that, right? So that's me too. Um, that's what my book is all about. It's about that unique little or not so little world, that subculture, that religious community that formed so many of us. A world that is seeing an accelerating exodus or exile of refugees, especially among those under the age of 40, but not only under the age of 40. Um, at least 25 million people in the US alone could be classified as post or ex evangelicals. Um, by one count, 40% of this population is not in church or, or affiliated anywhere. Um, largely because of their pain or trauma or, or conscientious objection to what they experienced back in that world. Um, my book partly begins by asking why 25 million exiles, uh, what are the main, um, main uh, exit, you might say, uh, sources of the exit velocity. And um, the studies are pretty clear. Uh, I name, and I'm gonna talk about each, some of these at least this morning in terms of need to move forward. Uh, biblical inerrancy, male dominated churches or families, uh, sexual purity and anti LGBTQ bias, um, anti-scientific attitudes, uh, inability to deal with climate change, um, sometimes an overall anti-intellectualism, um, a highly politicized version of Christianity, especially uh, identification of evangelicalism with republicanism and now eventually with Trump, um, and some very disturbing uh, connections with racism and white nationalism in a lot of, a lot of churches. You might say um, the Rush Limbaugh the Rush Limbaughification of a religion that was supposed to be about Jesus, that 
happened gradually over time. Um, but I think the roots of it were there from the beginning. And so part of what my book is about is trying to untangle some of that. I'll tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I, I was not born into the evangelical world. I grew up Catholic um, in Northern Virginia, where, where I was raised. Um, it didn't really work for me, so I left it behind, but I was always a very spiritually minded person. Um, as a 16 year old, I wandered into a Southern Baptist church and four days later, I was a, I was a born again convert. Um, they knew how to convert people back in the day. Um, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Anybody remember that language, the sinner's prayer? Um, I invited Jesus to be my savior and Lord. And uh, I found my, um, my identity, my God, my uh, calling, my community, uh, the um, integrative center of my personality around Jesus in that church in 1978. And I, I, that was very real to me. Um, uh, within six months, well, within two weeks, I was elected president of the youth group, which was a really bad idea. Um, six months later, uh, I, I was reporting a call to be a pastor and that never went away. Went off to college, uh, joined with the Baptists there. Four years later, I went to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky to become a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, loved it, got ordained, still was a Southern Baptist, but but some of the challenges were beginning to be apparent. This is the late 80s. Went to Union Seminary, New York to get a PhD in Christian ethics and discovered a wider world, but it was a little too wide for me at the time. Um, it was, it was uh, uh, more radical and more liberationist and more inclusive than I was quite ready for. I ended up um, settling into an identity that I called for 20 years, progressive evangelical, um, peace and justice evangelical. Uh, figures like Tony Campolo and Ron Sider and Jim Wallace were kind of uh, central for me. Um, uh, ended up uh, surviving three more years teaching at Southern Baptist Seminary, but I ended up having to leave over women in ministry went to another evangelical school and survived another 11 years, but got in gradually more trouble over issues, one of which I was involved with with your pastor Ken about, that was climate change, but also on torture. Remember when the U.S. started torturing people and we and Christians couldn't figure out whether that was right or wrong? I was a leader against that. Um, but then in 2014, when I felt led to write Changing Our Mind, that was when... Um, I was told you're done, you're not one of us, you're not a believer, you're, anything you ever did doesn't matter anymore, uh, you are out. In fact, um, uh, many people of course accused me as I'm sure many of you have been accused of not being a Christian, never having been a Christian. I wrote a memoir called uh, Still Christian in which I answered those critics and kind of reviewed my story and concluded that I really did love Jesus, that my conversion really was real. Um, and that everything that I had done was a, in an effort to be faithful, not that I had not made plenty of mistakes. But the issue was, well, how is it that my understanding of following Jesus has put me so much at odds with the community that uh, had been my home for so long? Um, and so this led me into a, you might say, a five-year process of asking about evangelicalism itself. What is this community? And um, 
where did it come from and what does it really believe and do I believe that? And if I don't, what do I believe instead? Um, and so I've moved past deconstruction and criticism to an effort. Well, there's plenty of deconstruction involved, but it's an effort to reconstruct. What do I now believe? What do I, what are my convictions that I would die for? What do I teach and preach when I'm in those roles? And so after evangelicalism um, is about that, it's the reconstructive project. I think it's also what Ken and Emily are doing in their wonderful book, Solus Jesus. You know, it's reconstruction, not just deconstruction. So let me just tell you a little bit about um, some of the things that I now believe. And I'll just, I'll just give you um, a couple of things so as not to take, I mean, not to take too much time, but so here's just a couple of key takeaways from the book. One is that evangelicalism is a made up word borrowed from the past by a group of fundamentalists in the 1940s to rebrand themselves. Um, and they successfully rebranded themselves in one of the most effective rebranding efforts ever. For the last 80 years, we've been living with this rebranding. But what I have concluded is that evangelicalism never really left fundamentalism behind. Um, the way of thinking within evangelicalism and the way, uh, the way of resolving conflict remain the same. Um, doctrinaire, male-dominated, uh, really a white movement, a white people's movement, very heavily reformed, as in the reformed tradition, Calvinist, and um, intolerant of dissent. And so many fine scholars have documented 80 years of efforts of people either attempting to be included in the community and being pushed out, um, or, or just realizing that the community is not really for them. So I, th in a sense, some of the main deconstruction I do in the book is of the category evangelicalism, that it isn't all that helpful and it's fine to leave it behind. And so having done that, I'm happy to leave it behind. Um, it was a made up identity anyway, okay? Let people uh, find a new identity that works better. Part of what evangelicalism proclaimed to be about was uh, biblical authority, sometimes in the language of infallibility and inerrancy. I concluded in studying all of that, that um, inerrancy and infallibility is language that goes beyond what the Bible says about itself, that it leads people into dead ends in their maze, because when they run into something that troubles them or something that doesn't seem to fit with the character of Jesus, they don't know what to do with it. So many people have left uh, evangelicalism or Christianity because they simply cannot swallow an inerrantist or infallibleist understanding of the Bible. So I propose instead that the, the text remains sacred, but it belongs to the church for the edification of the church as we attempt to follow Jesus as faithfully as we can. So it's our responsibility to read the Bible in a way that helps us to follow Jesus better. Um, and also that infallibleist claims very often translated into the pastor is infallible claims. The authoritative person at the front of the room is infallible. Don't question him. And it was almost always a him, right? And so those claims actually were uh, 
part of the reason they need to be deconstructed is so that we can have more humility as together we read scripture instead of having somebody tell us i have the authoritative interpretation and don't question me right i then move on to talk about how really we're better off discerning god's voice and god's will through a, a number of kind of cross-checking authorities paying attention to reason and experience to the voice of the spirit to intuition relationships community tradition and us kind of gathering together to learn from wherever there is truth to be found um and so uh i end up with a a, a term of christian humanism in which we rejoin the human family as together we seek the best wisdom for the living of our lives knowing that for us that looks like following jesus but we know that jesus can speak to us in a lot of different ways right um i then uh i then move into a chapter on the old testament new testament and the church my conclusion is that um the old misreadings of the hebrew bible or the old testament have often contributed to the theological problems in evangelicalism especially um a kind of implacable violent god um and instead uh i read the hebrew bible along with especially post-holocaust jewish theology um to speak about um god's gracious covenantal love god's liberating rescuing and sustaining uh, relationship with God's people, um, about um, the way the Jewish community uh, historically allows you to question texts in community instead of just having to kind of submit before them. Um, and I highlight the prophetic voice of Jeremiah, the inclusive voice of Jonah, and the challenging voice of Job as resources that can really continue to speak to us today. And so the Hebrew Bible can come alive again, not as a source of um, kind of violence in the name of God, but instead questioning prophetic critique and inclusive love. My New Testament chapter has a bit of feistiness to it um, because I propose that the evangelical uh, community has given us some not very helpful pictures of Jesus, including what I call Jesus who only dies on the cross for our sins. That's all he does. Uh, Jesus, who's my best friend only. Um, Jesus, who wants you to succeed, the kind of prosperity, uh, yuppie Jesus. Uh, the Hallmark Christmas movie Jesus, I call. Um, and the vacant Jesus, who we can fill with any content that we want. Um, I would add now um, the book uh, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumez, I think is how she says her name. Um, and, and she basically says masculinist John Wayne Jesus has dominated a lot, a lot of the evangelical world. And I think that's right. And I propose instead that we look at Jesus as apocalyptic prophet, lynched God, man, and risen Lord. Um, I have a chapter on the church in which I say that um, post-evangelicals are abandoning church, but many would not have to abandon church if they could know that there are spaces out there that are good for them. And I think and I, your, your church is, is one of them. Um, Post-evangelicals often feel like they're wandering around in a wasteland. They don't really feel like they belong in like a Catholic church or an Anglican church or, or many mainline churches, but sometimes they try. Sometimes they're happy there. Um, the evangelical churches have too many non-negotiable non problems, especially non-inclusiveness. 
Um, and so they don't know where to be. And so I just want to say to you all, you are one of one of the churches that I point to as a, as a way forward. And may your number increase all over the country, all over the world. Then finally, I have chapters on the ethical issues of uh, sexuality, politics, and race. And just briefly, um, on, on the sexuality chapter, I named two interconnected problems that uh, have attracted a lot of attention. One is purity culture, and the other is the anti-LGBTQ bias. You put these together, um, it's just been devastating for lots and lots and lots of people. And for some, it's like interlocking, it's both, it's intersecting, right? Um, and I, I really like how this chapter uh, ended up because I basically say that um, not only are these a problem, you add to this kind of male-dominated church structures, you also get a recipe uh, for um, sexual abuse. Uh, male sexual abuse, put it all in there. And there's a lot of the most traumatized post-evangelicals, it's in this nexus of issues right here. But I propose instead that what we need is a realist covenantal ethic in which everybody is invited. And I could say more about that in the Q&A if you want later. On the issue of politics, something I've been dealing with through my entire career, I basically say that modern evangelicalism has done just about everything wrong that you could possibly do in relation to the political arena, including being overly politicized um, and uh, uh, overly identified with a single political party, overly despairing when that party is not in charge, um, overly cozy with political authorities. And I propose um, some of the classic commitments of the church at its best in this area protecting a distinctive Christian identity, being driven by hope, not fear, keeping a critical distance from political parties and, and individuals, being grounded in a broad Christian ethical tradition instead of making it up as we go along, keeping a global perspective and a common good orientation. These are, these are uh, obviously things that can be done. Um, and then finally on race, it is, it is clear that all of predominantly white Christianity has a lot of repenting still to do in the area of our historic racism and white supremacism. That's not just evangelical Christianity, but um, there, is, there is a lot to be done there. And in fact, the, the increasingly open embrace of kind of white supremacist Christian nationalism in the last four to five years reveal by evangelicals reveals the depths of the problem um so that chapter traces the history of the way that white supremacism got woven into european and american christianity you can at least trace it back to the beginning of the colonial era in the 15th century wherever the europeans went it went with us it tainted, really polluted every version of Christianity that we projected out into the world that we dominated in conquest, colonization, enslavement, and genocide. Um, and we have never fully faced that. We've never adequately, therefore, repented of it. And so when you, one of the things I remember being taught is when you don't face your sins, 
you end up with various kinds of uh, defensive and shame mechanisms that are not healthy, far better to repent. And so um, I call on us to repent. I know that that is possible in a number of different settings, but it does not appear very likely until we move into much more inclusive church spaces in which we can't get away with um, some of the blindness that we have uh, exhibited all along in these centuries. So um, I conclude the book by saying this. Let me see if I can read this. Um, back to the maze. Many millions of people got lost back in that evangelical maze. They couldn't get past inerrancy or indifference to the environment, deterministic Calvinism or purity culture, or you name it, there's so many others. My goal is to help find a way out of the maze, find a way out of this stuck place, but always in the direction of Jesus. I'm a pastor, still that kid who felt called to ministry as a 17 year old, still wanting people to move in the direction of Jesus. The way out, for me at least, is in the direction of the Jesus that we actually meet in the Gospels. You can leave bad religion behind, but you don't have to replace it with secularism. You can replace it with better Jesus, maybe even soulless Jesus. And I want to close with this scripture. Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's go to Jesus. That's my, my uh, invitation as I close this morning. Thank you so much, Dr. Gushi. That was amazing. We're so grateful you're here today. We love hearing you speak every time you've been. I hope you'll come back. Um, your words are just always so helpful and encouraging. So thank you. We're going to have a meditation in a moment, but I want to share a little story first. I bought an itty bitty, tiny little $3 aloe plant at Aldi like two years ago. It had two little sprouts. It came in this tiny little pot. I've somehow managed to keep it alive for the last couple of years, but I recently noticed that the leaves were looking pale and droopy. And upon closer examination, I realized there were tons of leaves, way more than I had started out with, and they were really big. I'd somehow failed to notice just how much my plant had grown in two years time, and she needed to be moved to a larger pot. I think it's so funny how I didn't notice the growth until my plant's roots had become so crowded in its little pot that it was slowly killing the plant. So I bought a bigger pot. I added some more dirt. And within a day, her leaves were once again, bright green and she was thriving. Like, look at that much bigger pot. She looks so good now. So I love the expression, living things grow and growing things change. We aren't any different than my little plant. If we're growing, we're only going to thrive when we give ourselves room to expand. We may outgrow spaces, relationships, churches, beliefs, but that's nothing that a bigger pot and a little water and sunshine can't fix. We just have to believe that we're worthy of a bigger pot. So let's move into a time of meditation now. If you wanna join in, just get comfortable where you are. And when you're ready, you can close your eyes and take a nice, slow, deep breath in through your nose and then hold it for just a few seconds at the top before you breathe out. Do that again, in through your nose, hold it for a few seconds and then out.
Now begin to breathe normally, still nice and slow, nice deep breaths. Make sure to fill your lungs before you exhale. And now as you continue breathing, I want you to imagine a warm light at the top of your head. And slowly that light is going to move down your body. As the light touches each part of you, notice any tension and release the tension. Starting with the top of your head and moving down. Keep your breathing going nice and slow. Keep visualizing that light moving down your body, releasing tension as it goes until it reaches the tips of your toes. Feeling the warmth of the light, letting go of whatever is no longer serving you. As you're letting go of all that tension, with your eyes still closed, think of something that you love about yourself. It can be anything. Maybe the way that you love animals or your amazing lasagna recipe, your ability to find humor in any situation, your passion for the environment, anything that makes you feel proud or happy to be you. Keep breathing. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You are worthy of experiencing joy. You are worthy of healing. You are worthy of having hope. You are worthy of receiving love. You are worthy of a bigger pot. Take a couple more deep breaths. Last one. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes and Emily will do our candle lighting.